come now to oral questions of the day. The first in the name of the Honourable Barbara Davidson. Point of order. Point of order over here. I'm still on my feet. I'll sit down so you can have a go. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, yesterday at question time, uh, in response to a question from the Honourable Willow Jean Prime, the Minister for Children uh, provided an answer where she stated that uh, it was in the negative. Now, subsequently, she's come to correct that, which is great. But in a series of points of order after that answer was given, uh, the Honourable David Seymour stated that uh, the answer that was provided was in the positive. So it's a view of the Labor Party that if the Minister has subsequently come down to correct her answer, that perhaps Mr Seymour should also be asked to correct his statement, given he was speaking on behalf of the Minister's response. Does Mr Seymour have any response to that? Yeah. Uh, my statement was based on the facts as I believe them at the time. Uh, it's clear from the Hansard record that those facts have changed and people might imagine that I've changed my view too, but it doesn't in any way invalidate uh, the record of what I said at that time. Well, I think you can do a little better than that because uh, if, the, if the Minister has made a correction, uh, perhaps it would be a good idea to, accept that you, to, to indicate to the House you accept the correction. Mr Speaker, it would be extraordinary if I didn't. I'm obliged to take all members uh, at their word and I'd certainly take the Honourable Minister at her word in issuing the correction. Thank you. Uh, Honourable Marama Davidson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Prime Minister. Does he stand by his statement in relation to the Paris Agreement 2030 emission reduction targets? Quote, we are going to meet our commitments and obligations or does he agree with his Minister for Resources who said yesterday that, quote, we are not going to meet the 2030 dreamy fairy tale aspirational figures? Uh, yes, I stand by my statement. The government is going to meet its obligations and commitments that it's made on climate change. And I also stand by the uh, statement from the Minister of uh, Resources as well, because he was clearly talking about uh, the previous government's. 100% renewable electricity target, which actually is actually a fairy tale and is counterproductive. Does his government have any targets or policies to reduce fossil fuel use across the industry, energy and transport to replace the 2030 renewable electricity target? And if not, why not? Yeah, we're going to actually electrify New Zealand by doubling the amount of renewable electricity that's in New Zealand so we can make the transition well and make our sectors move to clean, green energy. Is he concerned about the growing contradiction under this government between New Zealand's international and climate commitments and domestic plans which undermine efforts to reduce emissions such as reopening oil and gas drilling and cancelling the clean car discount? Uh, absolutely not. We are deeply committed to delivering on our climate goals and commitments. The way we go about doing that may be different from the previous government, but don't misunderstand our commitment to the targets and goals. Does he stand by his statement, quote, there is no reason for climate deniers and climate minimalists in the 21st century, and if so, is he embarrassed by the statements of the Minister of Resources that, quote, one of the great lies about climate change is that, yes, apparently it's a crisis? Climate change is a crisis. Does he agree with the Climate Change Commission that, quote, weakening action on climate policy during times of adverse economic conditions, which climate change is only likely to exacerbate, is not sustainable and will greatly compromise Aotearoa New Zealand's ability to meet emissions budgets 
and the 2050 target. We're not weakening our actions on climate change. We're just going about it a different way. Will he? <laughs> will he or will he not instruct all ministers to implement the Commission's advice in their work programme? A point of order, David Seymour. Well, Mr Speaker, Simmel. I apologise to interrupt the member. You may not have heard, but after the Prime Minister resumed his seat, I heard Chloe Horbrook say that's a demonstrable lie. Um, it's quite a serious accusation to make of any member, and I wonder what your view is and how you're going to enforce such rules. Uh, look, I did not hear it from up here, but if the member made a statement like that, she may consider withdrawing and apologising. Uh, Speaking in the point of order, Mr Speaker? Yes. My point was that it is demonstrable. Point of order. Point of order, please. I think the member should be given a chance to withdraw that because it may well be on the Hansard audio record and if that's the case, then we know where this goes after that. There are Laura all Davidson. sorts of statements on start, the Hansard record, including from start, that very sorry. minister. Excuse me, start again. I'll call the member so the whole House can hear her. The Honourable Marable Davidson speaking to the point of order. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I apologise. There are a whole range of statements on the Hansard record and I am happy to accept clarity for what will and will be struck off Hansard records. Thank you. That wasn't the point being made by the Right Honourable Winston Peters. However, I've got advice here. Uh, standing, uh, sorry, Speaker's Ruling 48.1, saying a member is lying is always out of order. So if that is what the member said and does not want to withdraw it, uh, then, then that does have other consequences. Speaking to the point of order. Mr Speaker, I was speaking to the content of the policies as put forward by this government and the fact that the content of those policies are a lie. If the inference is that therefore the minister or the prime minister are a liar, that wasn't the statement that I was making, but I was pointing out that it is demonstrable on the evidence that the undertakings from this government are completely contrary to our climate commitments. Okay. Okay, I think we'll move on. That is an opinion. Uh, others will make a judgment on whatever the Hansard record might eventually show. Supplementary, Honourable Marama Davidson. To the Prime Minister, will he or will he not instruct all ministers to implement the Commission's advice in their work programmes? Uh, our government's committed to delivering on climate change and our ministers are making sure that they can do that through their respective portfolios. Supplementary, uh, Ronald Chris Hopkins. Can he name one decision that his government has taken to date that will materially reduce New Zealand's net greenhouse gas emissions? If so, what is it? Uh, it's our plan to actually increase and double the amount of renewable energy, electricity. It's not going to reduce the emissions. Thank you. We come now to. Yeah, good. Nice argument across the House. We come now to question number two. In the name of the Right Honourable Chris Hopkins. To the Prime Minister, does he stand by all of his government statements and actions? Uh, yes, and particularly the government statement that we will be a government that gets things done for New Zealand. And that starts with our 100-day plan, which includes a number of changes to make it easier for Kiwis to be able to get ahead, make our communities safer and deliver better health and education for our young people. This is a government that's got a mandate for change and it's a focus on delivering for New Zealanders, unlike the previous government. Does he stand by his government's commitment in the National Act Agreement 
to, quote, review whether the firearms registry is effectively improving public safety, end quote, or does he agree with Mark Mitchell that the registry was justified as the country, without a doubt, has an issue with licensed firearm holders going in and buying on order for people who don't have licences, mostly gang members and organised crime? Uh, we agree with the decision to review the gun register. Why? Uh, because we want to make sure that it's working effectively and delivering public safety. Has he told Mark Mitchell he's wrong? He's not wrong. Mark still support. <laughs> he's not wrong. We support the gun register. We support the gun register. We want to make a review to make sure that's working effectively. Supplementary question, Mr. Speaker. Does he agree with David Seymour that X proposal to have a debate and referendum on the treaty? You know, the coalition government has agreed to go halfway with that and then reevaluate and perhaps proceed further, and it will actually enhance the manner of the treaty. Or does he agree with Christopher Luxon that we will pursue a treaty principles bill to select committee, and that is as far as it will go? Uh, the position of the government is that we will support as, um, the bill until select committee for its first reading, and that's as far as the commitment goes at this stage. Supplementary question. What's the point of sending a bill to a select committee that the government intends to vote down, other than to waste thousands of hours of people's time and a lot of taxpayers' money? As a, a democracy and as part of our coalition agreement with the National Act, that is our commitment that we have made. Mr Speaker. Is this the first example of the government's reduction in waste, that they're going to vote in favour of a bill going to select committee that they have no intention of passing into law? Look, I think it's a bit rich for that member to talk about wasteful government spending. <laughs> he, he, he led a government that undertook so much wasteful government spending it drove domestic inflation, drove interest rates up, slowed our economic growth up and put at risk employment. So no disrespect, not taking any lectures from that member. Welcome to question number three, and over Catherine Webb. My question is to the Minister of Finance. What reports has she received on the challenge of inflation to New Zealand? Just uh, before the member answers, you need to have, I know that was a, a loud burst, it's a technical issue, but a quiet while people are asking questions. Uh, Honourable Minister. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The reports I have received confirm that inflation remains a major challenge in New Zealand at a rate of 5.6%, even while inflation falls rapidly overseas. The Reserve Bank has said in their most recent monetary policy statement that non-tradable inflation is easing only gradually, highlighting the challenge facing the government and the Reserve Bank as we look to win the fight on inflation in coming months. I want to reassure New Zealanders who are struggling with the cost of living that beating inflation is this government's top priority. Our first act in Parliament was to introduce and progress legislation returning the Reserve Bank to a single mandate, ensuring New Zealanders can have confidence that our commitment to beating inflation is rock solid. Supplementary question. How does inflation in New Zealand compare to other countries overseas? Well, while inflation remains very high at home at 5.6%, other countries offshore are already making significant progress. Inflation in the United States fell to just 3.1% overnight. Inflation in Canada is also down at 3.1%. Mr Hipkins asks what the inflation rate is in the UK, and I can inform him it is down at 4.6%. So he managed to do an even worse job than the you. Entry question. What factors have led domestic inflation to remain so high? According to the OECD's latest economic outlook, up until late 2023, quote, too much weight 
has been put on monetary policy to reduce inflation, requiring higher interest rates. And that quote, the fiscal deficit is contributing to this imbalance. The incoming government will not be able to fix in one budget an imbalance of spending that has built up over six years. However, the outgoing government that has left us with a forecast deficit this year of $11.4 billion, and that's in the pre-foo, but we are already taking early action as part of the 100-day plan to end wasteful spending, uh, and I look forward to giving many speeches on that. Supplementary question. What Catherine next Reed. steps is the government taking to support New Zealanders with the cost of living crisis? We know that New Zealanders are struggling, which is why the government is committed to delivering fiscally neutral tax relief next year. After years of watching their money squandered on wasteful projects like Lake Onslow Light Rail and the Auckland Bike Bridge, projects that cost millions and went nowhere like the TVNZ, RNZ merger, the jobs tax income insurance scheme and all of the other items in the policy bonfire, our government is committed to reducing wasteful spending and delivering income tax relief for New Zealanders. Right Honourable Winston-Peters. Minister of Finance, as to whether or not, in her previous answer, that is the greatest disparity ever between a forecast surplus and an actual deficit. I, I, what I would also highlight, that the member is correct to highlight... Well, the, the Deputy Prime Minister is correct to highlight that the gulf between the rhetoric of a government and the actual numbers it delivered, I don't think has ever been wider. Because we had a finance minister who repeatedly promised a return to surplus, and yet every time he arose to announce his next budget, yeah. the surplus would mysteriously slip, slip, slip away. Coming now to question number four, Rauri Waiti. Tēnā koe te piko o tira, tēnā tātou e te whare. My question is to the Minister for Children. Does she stand by her statement on the government's policy to remove Section 7AA of the Oranga Tamariki Act? Nothing about this change will affect the support services and programs that Oranga Tamariki provides for Māori. If not, why not? Speaker, could we possibly just have the question? But if it is to be in Māori, can we have it in Māori? But not both. Point of order. Uh, sorry. Wasting time. Very good. We'll have uh, uh, the answer from the Honourable Karen Choi. Mr Speaker, yes. Tēnā koe How can she stand by that statement when Oranga Tamariki's own public website states that Section 7AA enables them to develop strategic partnerships with iwi and Māori organisations including iwi authorities. Mr Speaker, uh, by removing Section 7AA, that will not remove the ability for the 10 strategic partnerships that are currently in place and work to be made on other strategic partnerships. I have instructed officials to continue working with iwi, hapu and whanau um, when this is to the benefit of our children. How can she stand by that statement when Oranga Tamariki also spell out that the section ensures that policies, practices and services have regard to Manatamaiti, Whakapapa and Whanaungatanga? 
nothing in removing Section 7AA will remove that. There are already existing provisions within the Act um, that protect the rights of whānau, hapu and iwi. I refer the member to Sections 4, 5 and 13 of the Oranga Tamariki Act. What is her response to iwi leaders appalled by this policy, including Waikato Tainui Chairperson Tukuroirangi Morgan, who has said that taking the section would sever iwi partnerships, success, uh, successfully reconnecting Tamariki Māori with their whakapapa? Um, I respect um, what that member has to say, but um, nothing by removing that act will make that happen. The only people implying that these partnerships will be affected are those from across the House, and I have instructed officials that they should continue working with iwi and Māori organisations where this is achieving a positive outcome, uh, outcomes for young people. That's right. Does she agree... Does she agree with Chief Children Commissioner Dr Claire Akhmad with, who said that Section 7AA makes clear the right of Mokopuna Māori be connected with and know their wakapapa? That means wherever they can be safe being in the care of their whānau, hapu and iwi, and if not, why not? The Oranga Tamariki Act already has provisions which protect the rights of whānau, hapu and iwi, and I again refer the member to Sections 4, 5 and 13 of the Oranga Tamariki Act. How can she justify this policy to whānau, hapu and iwi Māori when she knows full well that this will lead to many more tamariki Māori being severed from wakapapa? Um, I, actually, I actually really disagree with that sentiment. Um, nothing with removing Section 7AA from the Act um, removes the ability for uh, young people to connect with their whakapapa. Is she comfortable with her legacy as Minister of Children being the person who presided over another stolen generation of Indigenous children. Oh, oh, that's, um, the, the, the Minister may answer, but that question uh, is pretty wide of the mark. And, uh, Mr not... Speaker, I am proud to stand here as the Minister of Children that represents a government that is committed to making sure that every child in New Zealand wakes up knowing today is going to be a better day. Yes. Question number five, I call Jenny Markoff. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Minister for Regional Development and asks, what updates can he provide of any regional development investments? Speaker. The Honourable Shane Jones. Uh, sir, it's my pleasure to announce to the House as a consequence of a far-sighted politician six years ago making an investment on behalf of the government in the Snowy River Gold Mine that the entirety of the $15 million has been paid back. This gold mine into Taipotuni, West Coast, enjoyed the uh, upside of employing 50 people. Another 140 are on the way as they seek to raise $100 million, a great example of central government collaborating with industry in regional New Zealand. Supplementary. Is he confident that seabed mining will feature in regional development investments? Um, speaker. Uh, yes, seabed mining has a legitimate place in New Zealand's regional economy. Sadly, a number of pixie-like hapus in Taranaki have sought to undermine this legitimate industry. I can assure you, though, Mr Speaker, 
that the EPA legislation, if it needs to be changed to give certainty to investors, and we will not have Tikanga Māori mangled and distorted 37 kilometres off the coast of Taranaki. Uh, just before the member speaks, I'll just say uh, we can't on one hand sort of demand a degree of decorum in the House and then bring in expressive language like that that can be a little inflammatory. The member is very good at it. There's no question about that. Most of the time, <laughs> but not particularly helpful. Jenny Markoff. Thank you. Supplementary. How will oil and gas investments located in regional New Zealand feature in regional development? Uh, Mr Speaker, I've brought this document with me here today, which contains an assertion, aspirational in nature, that by 2030, all sources of energy to maintain security of supply in regional New Zealand will be renewable. Oil and gas will play a key role and when that legislation is changed in regional New Zealand, it will offer certainty to the investment community and then the grown-ups will ensure that there is security and manageable risk in our energy sector, unlike what we hear from the other side of the House. And I look forward to providing that educational service to other members of Parliament. Question number six, the Honourable Grant Robertson. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Finance. What is the total cost to the government of the tax relief outlined in the policy programme of the government as expressed in the coalition agreements? Thank you, Mr Speaker. The government stands by the commitments set out in our coalition agreements. The advice I have received on the potential fiscal impact of tax relief is obviously budget sensitive and I look forward to updating the House on details in due course. Supplementary question, Mr Speaker. Uh, does she stand by the answers she's given in this House that she uh, does not know what specific revenue initiatives will fund the tax relief programme? I would have to see that comment in context to believe that it has been fairly represented in the House. Members. Supplementary question, uh, Mr Speaker. How can she say that she will deliver fiscally neutral tax relief when she doesn't know how much it's going to cost? Because I do know how much it's going to cost, but I'm not uh, sharing that member with the information uh, when it is budget sensitive. I can also be confident about delivering tax relief because unlike the member opposite, I actually believe New Zealanders deserve to keep more of what they earn and they deserve a government that won't waste their hard-earned wages on boondoggles like he did. Mr Speaker, why has the member changed her position on the app tax? Uh, I am not responsible for commitments made in party manifestos. Oh. <laughs> Supplementary question, Mr Speaker. Uh, can the Minister confirm that the National Party's position before the election was to reverse the app tax and that it is now the position of a national-led government that it will keep the app tax in place? Point of order, Mr Speaker. Uh, point of order, uh, Honourable Chris Bishop. I think, I think you know what I'm about to say, that the Minister is not responsible for statements made by um, political parties before elections. True. Yeah, good. The member might like to have another way of answering, asking the question. Uh, does she agree with Nicola Willis, the National Party finance spokesperson, who said that the app tax uh, was an outrage and should be reversed? I do agree with Nicola Willis. And what I also agree with Nicola Willis is that it is time for a government that stops tax grabbing 
but should start by prioritising income tax relief for working people. We have been left with fiscal constraints by the previous government that are extreme. And in that context, our priority must be letting New Zealanders keep more of what they earn with personal income tax relief. Supplementary, in light of that answer, that she agrees that the app tax was outrageous and should be reserved. She agrees with Nicola Willis on that. How can she continue to be the Minister of Finance in a government that is now imposing the app tax? I agreed with the statements of Nicola Willis in the context in which they were given. As the Minister of Finance, I am responsible for the policy commitments of our government and its decisions. Uh, we come now to question number seven, Ryan Hamilton. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Transport and asks, what actions is he taking to repeal the clean car discount scheme by 31st of December? Honourable Simeon Brown. Our coalition government committed to axing the ute tax and clean car discount scheme by 31 December to provide assurance to hard-working New Zealanders that they can purchase the vehicles they need without being unfairly penalised and ending what is a fiscally unsustainable scheme. Yesterday I introduced legislation to the House to axe the ute tax by 31 December and deliver on this commitment. This means that changes, charges will end for vehicles after 11.59pm on 31 December 2023 and buyers of low emitting vehicles will no longer be able to apply for rebates. Supplementary. Supplementary. Why are these actions being taken? Well, no, look, it's a... stop there. Sorry, far too much talk while people are asking a question. Please ask the question again, oh, Mr Hamilton. Why are these actions being taken? Well, a very, a very good question, Mr Speaker. The previous government promised the scheme would be fiscally neutral. But as at 30th of November, $579 million has been paid out in rebates. $13.5 million has been spent on administration costs, while only $290 million has been received in charges. This has left taxpayers footing the bill for an eye-watering $302.5 million deficit. Yeah. Ryan Hamilton. Uh, what subsidies have been paid out under the scheme with this $302.5 million deficit? Yeah. Well, Mr Speaker, the $302.5 million deficit hitting taxpayers' pockets has contributed to thousands of subsidies to high-end vehicles costing $70,000 and more. In the last 18 months alone, over $122 million has been paid out to those buying high-end vehicles under the scheme. Our government does not believe that taxpayers should be subsidising those who can already afford to purchase these vehicles. Supplementary. Ryan Hamilton. What advice has he seen on the financial sustainability of this scheme? Well, Mr Speaker, advice I have received shows the clean car discount scheme will not survive past mid-2024 without substantial changes to how it operates. Continuing the scheme would likely require a combination of lowering and restricting rebates to EVs, increasing charges and applying them to all petrol, diesel and some hybrids, or providing more Crown funding. This will only worsen equity issues and could result in taxpayers footing, uh, footing an even bigger bill. Uh, question number eight, the Honourable Willow Jean Prime. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is for the Minister for Children. Does she stand by all her statements and actions? Mr Speaker. Yes. Supplementary. 
The Minister said that Section 7AA creates a fundamental conflict between protecting the best interests of children on the one hand and honouring the treaty on the other. What is the conflict? Mr Speaker, uh, from what I've been hearing from community organisations and groups and also um, hearing from news articles around the issues with Section 7AA is uh, the intent behind what honouring the treaty means um, is not clear and it depends on how someone interprets what honouring the treaty means. And so that creates a conflict because when decisions are being made, um, the decisions may vary on the interpretation of what honouring the treaty means. Supplementary. <clears throat> Does she still maintain there is a conflict when Section 4A says, in all matters relating to the administration or application of this Act, other than Parts 4 and 5 in Sections 351 to 360, the well-being and best interests of the child or young person are the first and paramount consideration, having regard to the principles set out in Sections 5 and 13? Mr Speaker, this change is about helping provide clarity of focus to social workers to any decisions they make around removals and placements and there are already provisions in the Act which provide rights to whānau, hapu and iwi. I refer this member to 4, 5 and 13 of the Oranga Tamariki Act. Supplementary. Can the Minister confirm that before the introduction of the bill, that she will meet with the strategic Māori partners, Eastern Bay of Plenty Iwi Provider Alliance, Māori Women's Welfare League Partnership, Ngāti Kahununu Partnership, Ngaitahu Partnership, Waikato Tainui Partnership, Tūhoi Partnership, Ngāpuhi Partnership, Ngāti Tōranga Tira Te Ati Awa Partnership and Te Kahu Oranga Partnership. Mr Speaker, I have, sp I have asked for advice on how I can organise to meet with these groups that, ha that have committed partnership agreements and if my calendar has the space to do this, I will do so. Thank you. Can I just say, no noise over here either when there's a question being asked. Supplementary. In light of her response to question number four, that she is proud, how can she possibly feel proud to condemn future generations of Māori tamariki to be alienated from their whakapapa, language and culture? Yeah. Uh, I think the Minister might like to make an attempt to answer that question. It was, uh, you're making a big supposition there which is, is a little outside it, but yeah. let's see what we can Mr Speaker, there. I am very proud to stand here and be the Minister for Children uh, and to make sure that I am putting things in place to make the lives of children in New Zealand better. Uh, nothing I have ever said or done implies that I want to destroy Māori um, heritage, whakapapa or anything to do with Māori ethnicity. Right, Can I ask the Minister to be careful when she sees these Māori groups, because the last Minister in her place who did that ended up them all voting for another political party, not Labour. Yeah, very good. Thank you for the advice. I'm sure the whole House will take that on board. Uh, come now to question number nine in the name of Carl Bates. Mr Speaker, what is the Government doing to improve literacy and numeracy achievement in New Zealand? Honourable Erica Stanford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Yesterday, the Education Bulletin was sent out to the education sector in, uh, indicating the government's intention to implement the hour-a-day policy into New Zealand schools, improving outcomes in reading, writing and maths, 
is a priority for this government, so I have asked schools with students in years zero to eight to spend an average of an hour a day teaching reading, writing and maths. Supplementary. Mr Speaker, what, why is it important that children spend an hour a day on each of these subjects? Mr Speaker, reading, writing and maths are fundamental skills that unlock the rest of the curriculum. In a 2021 report uh, to the, into the teaching of mathematics in New Zealand, the Royal Society found significant variation amongst schools in terms of the amount of time devoted to teaching maths, with some teachers scheduling maths for as much as seven hours a week, while others teach it for fewer than three. It was their recommendation in that report to introduce an hour a day of mathematics. The previous government ignored those recommendations, but this government will be introducing an hour a day to see all children across New Zealand getting consistent, high-quality education that they deserve. And this is just the first step. Supplement. What results has the Minister seen to indicate that this change is necessary? Mr Speaker, the 2022 PISA results show a significant decline in the performance of 15-year-old students in maths compared to 2018 and confirms the long-term trend of declining achievement in core subjects since 2000. The 2022 National Monitoring Study showed that only 41.5% of our Year 8s were at curriculum for maths after eight years of schooling. These results show us that our education system has continued to deliver poor outcomes for learners, but our government has a plan to turn this around. Our Teaching the Basics Brilliantly policy, which includes an hour a day, builds an important foundation to ensure young people receive the high-quality education they deserve and allows them to live the life that they want. Mr Speaker, supplementary. Supplementary, Honourable Chair Antonetti. How frequently reading, writing and maths is currently being taught in classrooms, given the acknowledgement in the Ministry of Education bulletin to school principals yesterday that many of them were already doing this and little change was needed? Mr Speaker, if the uh, member opposite had been listening to my previous uh, answer, she would have heard the fact that the government's own report that they commissioned in 2021 stated that there was a wide variation between schools in the teaching of mathematics, with some only teaching it for three hours a day. We acknowledge that many schools already do this, but there is some variability and we want to make sure it is consistent across the sector. And I suggest that the member next time listens more carefully to my answers. Yeah. Mr Speaker, what will an hour a day look like in practice in the classroom? Mr Speaker, as I said in the education bulletin that went out this week, we know that many schools already do an hour a day of reading, writing and maths, but it is our intention to ensure that this great practice is happening consistently across the sector in New Zealand. We expect that these hours take place across the entire school day and throughout the curriculum. This will include explicit teaching, collaborative learning, activities, games and all the other best practice techniques teachers use to engage and develop young people's skills. But rest assured, Mr Speaker, it is our expectation that our young people are getting access to an hour of reading, writing and mathematics every day across the whole country in every classroom. Thank you. Uh, question number 10, the name of the Honourable uh, Julianne, uh, Julianne Genta. Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Transport. What communication, if any, has he had with the Ministry of Transport and Wakakotahi New Zealand Transport Agency regarding the role transport will play in reducing climate emissions? Brown. The Ministry of Transport and NZTA's briefings to the incoming Minister covered key transport issues, including the role transport can play in the reduction of emissions. 
Three. Has he instructed the leadership of Wakakotahi and the Ministry of Transport that transport will have little to no role in emissions reduction this term? Uh, I have written to the New Zealand Transport Agency to ask them to stop work on the prior government's uh, reduction in vehicle kilometre travelled work program, which was simply writing reports uh, rather than actually delivering infrastructure. Our approach will be actually delivering infrastructure, while the last government was all about writing reports. Yeah. Point of order. Yeah, a point of order, I appreciate the answer, Mr. Speaker. I did ask a very specific question about whether he had spoken to the leadership of the Transport Agency and the Ministry of Transport and said that transport will have little to no role in emissions reduction. Well, it's a bit novel to appreciate the answer and then criticise it, but um, the Honourable Simeon Brown may like to repeat what he's already said. Yeah, as, as I said in my answer, I have written to the Chair of the New Zealand Transport Agency in relation to uh, the work around vehicle kilometres travelled, which was funded from the Climate Emergency Response Fund. And as I Good. mentioned earlier... That's it. That clarifies, it. Clar uh, clarifies that. Honourable Julianne Gentler. Is he committed to achieving the transport emissions reductions targets? And if so, how does he intend to achieve them? Uh, yes, and uh, I have received advice that uh, transport is expected to achieve the first emissions budget period 2022 to 2025. Does he accept the advice from the Climate Change Commission on transport emissions that the need for decisive government action is immediate? And if not, why not? Uh, I, I've asked for advice uh, in relation to the climate report which was released yesterday, but I would say that our government's approach will be actually on building infrastructure rather than wasting hundreds of millions of dollars on endless reports business cases and actually not delivering anything which was uh, that past government's approach. Does he accept... The Honourable Duncan Webb. Uh, Mr Speaker, the uh, Minister referred to the briefing to the incoming Minister in his response to the primary question. Uh, it's uh, understood that in that case he will be required to table the document. Will the Minister be tabling that document? Uh, well, speaking of the point of order, the Honourable Chris Bishop. Well, that would be true if the Minister was quoting from it, which he wasn't. Well, I think that's, that's, that is the rule. So, uh, Honourable Julianne Genta, you've got another question. Does he accept the advice from the Climate Change Commission released yesterday in relation to low emissions and zero emissions vehicles that, quote, supports to address the upfront cost barrier are especially important and if so, will he implement a price incentive for zero emissions vehicles to replace the clean car discount? No, we're not going to continue to waste hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayers' funded money to subsidise wealthy New Zealanders to be able to buy electric vehicles they can already purchase. Instead, we will invest in supercharging the electric vehicle charging network, which is the priority under this government. Question number 11, the Honourable Jenny Anderson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Police. Does he stand by the statement made by the National Party spokesperson, uh, the Honourable Mark Mitchell, that an additional 300 police officers over four years takes us from a ratio of 480 to 470 to, to one, and if so, why? Uh, point of order. Um, sorry to the um, member. I should have um, stopped her before she asked her question. Mr Speaker, 
we're surprised uh, on the government benches that this question has been accepted um, for as a primary question. The, the, the minister is not responsible to is not able to stand by statements made by national party spokespeople, and uh, I can't remember the exact question earlier on, but you, you yourself accepted that in response to a previous supplementary and point of order exchange that uh, ministers are responsible for statements as ministers, uh, and they're not able to stand by statements. I think it was the question of uh, Mr Robertson and um, the Minister of Finance uh, around uh, political party uh, statements. So um, we are slightly surprised that this question was accepted as a, uh, a primary question on notice. It could have been worded differently, but in the way it's worded currently, that the minister is being asked to stand uh, behind a statement made by a political party spokesperson. Uh, uh, OK, there you go. Well, Mr. Mr Speaker, this has gone through a process and I understand that it has been amended in order to fit within the rules and it is indeed consistent with supplementary questions which have been allowed already in this question time. Uh, look, the question itself has been modified from what was first uh, brought uh, to the clerks uh, and uh, uh, actually... Now that I look at it, it's not modified the way it was meant to be modified. I think uh, if I look at another sheet, make sure that I'm looking at the right one. Okay. Uh, the the point I think here is that the answer that uh, the, the the answer to it could well be the answer, the suggestion just made by the leader of the house. So the question is on the sheet. The question will stand. I'll call the honourable Mark Mitchell. Well, as incoming minister, I was advised that the previous government had failed to complete work on the ratio announced and had in fact severely underfunded it. I'm committed to the additional 500 police officers agreed in our coalition agreement. Supplementary. The Honourable Jenny Anderson. Will he guarantee the 1 to 480 police to population ratio? Well, that is not the coalition's policy. That is the failed outgoing government's policy. Our, 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 policy, our, policy, our policy is to commit to an additional 500 police officers. On top of the 1,800 police officers that New Zealand First delivered, New Zealand First and National and this coalition government will now deliver 2,300 additional police officers. Supplementary. To the Minister, does the government have any policy on police-to-population ratio? Well, the outgoing government had a shambolic policy in relation to uh, police-to-public ratio. The coalition government has got a very clear and concise policy. We are going to add an additional 500 police officers to the frontline police numbers. Point of order. Point of order. Mr Speaker, that, that, I don't think that question was actually addressed. Sorry, say it again. I, I, uh, there was noise over here from your colleagues. I'd like a point of order. That supplementary question was not addressed by the Minister. Well, in what way was it not addressed? What is the, 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 you're not always going to get an answer that is totally satisfactory to the question being asked. It's a long-established fact here. Ask the question again. Does the government have any policy on police-to-population ratio? Mr Speaker, again, the government's policy and commitment as a coalition is very clear. We are going to add net an additional 500 frontline police officers 
during the term of this government. Supplementary. Does he agree with the comment of Christopher Luxon that the funding for additional police comes out of future operating allowances, 124 million over four years? Well, the reality is that the books are a shambles um, under the previous government. So we've, we've got quite a bit of work to do. The, the, the previous government already underfunded the policy around uh, the 1 to 480 numbers. So, 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 so we've made a commitment to the 500 and we will come through with that commitment. But believe me, we've got a lot of work to do to tidy up the mess that that government made. A point of order? A point of order, Mr Speaker. I respect the ruling that you made before around whether or not you can expect a particular answer. That question was actually about the source. We can have a debate about the amount, which the member had done several times in earlier questions, but that was a question about the source of the funding and it wasn't addressed. Well, it, it, you, the police minister will obviously make submissions to the finance minister, as the member will be well known the process to be. Uh, where the funding comes from, is not a specific bucket, as the uh, uh, member or might like to convey. Yeah, I know. Well, well, I could, I could uh, easily agree with you on that, but that's not uh, where we're at. The point is, the point is uh, that the minister has answered the way a minister should. Well, that might be your opinion. But it's not mine. Jenny Anderson. Will he guarantee there will be no cuts? or reprioritisation to the police budget in order to deliver 500 extra police? Uh, absolutely, I'll make that guarantee. This government is committed. This government, this government is committed to supporting our front line because it, it, appears, it appears not only were they a soft on crime government, they're a soft on crime opposition as well. We are, we, we are committed to supporting our front line. It is a coalition commitment that we will deliver 500 uh, frontline police officers, and we will do that. Question, speaker. question number 12, Joseph Mooney. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister for Social Development and Employment. What reports has she seen on the job seeker support benefit? Thank you, Mr Speaker. According to the latest benefit numbers released by the Ministry of Social Development in November, there are currently 182,340 people on JobSeeker support. This is an increase of over 11,000 people this year Unacceptable. alone. Unacceptable. In total, there were 61,614 more people receiving the JobSeeker support benefit during Labor's time in government. Andrew. Joseph Moody. What have the labour market conditions been over the past two years? Over the past two years, the employment market has been one of the tightest in recent memory, with employers everywhere crying out for staff. However, this opportunity was squandered by the previous government, and unfortunately, this has led to an increase of over 60,000 people on the job seeker benefit. Supplementary. When is the job seeker support benefit expected to peak? The tough economic conditions that our government has inherited means that the number of people on the job seeker benefit is expected to keep rising until January 2025. 
the latest figures released in the preview forecast, the number will increase to 197,400 New Zealanders. Supplementary. Supplementary. The Honourable Kamal Cipollone. How does the proportion of working age New Zealanders on job seeker benefit now compare to the same period of time post GFC under the national government's watch? What's that got to do with it? What is relevant today is the increase in number that that government, when they were in charge for six years, oversaw a massive increase in the number of people on the job seeker benefit when the unemployment rate was low. Nearly 3% higher were on the job seeker support benefit. Uh, right Honourable Chris Hopkins, support of order. Mr Speaker, the question was actually relatively specific. If the Minister doesn't know, she can simply say, I don't know, but it's not an open invitation to attack the person asking the question. Well, it, it may not be, but remember to in discussions we've actually quite recently had, uh, where there is a, a, a clear political point being made in a sub, which I think it was in that case, uh, then it's reasonable that you're going to get a different type of answer. There was, there was absolutely no political statement in there. It was, asking, it was asking the Minister to compare one period of time with another period of time. What was the political statement? What was the political statement? That's very true. Well, I took it. I took it that by the member asking firstly a primary about the, the primary relates to what reports has she seen on job seeker support benefit and then it morphed into uh, what's different to what was happening nine years ago or six uh, sorry six years ago I don't think I think there was a, a point trying to be made however however in good faith uh, let's uh, have uh, Carmel Cipollone ask another question might be a similar one uh, and see what uh, the Honourable Louise Upson can uh, say in reply. Mr Speaker, I'd ask a different one. How many of the 180,000 New Zealanders on main benefit now are on benefit because they have a health condition or disability? Honourable Louise Upson. Uh, Mr Speaker, I think that member is getting her numbers mixed up. The 182,000 are on the job seeker benefit. That is not the total number on main benefit. That is a lot higher. Thank you. That's, uh, oh, OK. Um, point of order, Chris Bishop. Were you going to call the end of question time? Big pardon? You were going to call the end of question time? Uh, no, I was going to take Joseph Moody, who was on his feet. Oh, OK. I was going to wait till the end of question time. I'll do it now. Um, oh, no, we can wait till the end of question time. Okay. Joseph Moody. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, how many more young people were on JobSeeker benefit under the Labor government? Good question. Oh, no. The question's out. Sorry. Um, call the Honourable Chris Bishop. Mr Speaker, um, just before we move, move uh, on, um, I wanted to ask you, sir, to just reflect on uh, question 11 and the primary um, wording of that. Um, I think it would be, if it, if it is now the practice that ministers can be asked to stand by statements made by uh, spokespeople um, in opposition or in other roles, that will significantly widen the, ambit, the potential ambit of questions to ministers. And um, that, would, that would be quite a, quite a change to the way question times worked. So um, we, we let the question 11 go, and the, you know, it was fine, is what it is. But I think it would be helpful if you would maybe reflect on that and provide some clarity for the whole House. And, uh, and I think I should also be uh, absolutely certain that any adjustments that are made to the question are reflected in the sheet. 
the words uh, stand by the statement uh, could well have been uh, agree with, in which case it would have brought it totally in order. Uh, that is the end of uh, question time.